Right, well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here. And I want to sort of get to, I think, again, this is a very good session in that I really want to try and build on what has gone before and now look a little bit more at the issue of impacts of sea level rise given um, a four degree centigrade or above rise in temperature. Um, my co-workers are um, Jason Lowe, Sally Brown, Johan Hinkle, who will be speaking afterwards actually on, um, on again, a related talk that will build on this work, Nassos Favides and Richard Toll. And um, if you're asked the question, well, what are the impacts of a given rise in sea level? Um, superficially, that sounds like a very simple question, but actually it's multidimensional. So I want to take you through, first of all, it's been covered fairly well, but now revision about the relationship between sea level rise and temperature rise. But there are lots of uncertainties there. For a given temperature rise, we could get a range of sea level rise. Then when you move through the issue of impacts, well, it's more than just sea level. It depends on exposure, what things, what people, what assets are sitting there in areas that might be affected. And also adaptive capacity. What kind of adaptation? Are there dikes, for example? The Netherlands is highly exposed, but it's very well protected. Then, using a global model called DIVA, which I'll introduce, we'll look at impacts both with and without adaptation to sort of show the importance of, the ad of, of adaptation and then some concluding remarks. Well, my starting point actually is the Hadley Centre Hadley scenarios that were just presented. So we have um, this range of rise up to about half a metre by 2100. But as was mentioned in the previous talk, um, we're also concerned about the low probability, high consequence end, which maybe is actually more likely than we think from some of the earlier talks. So we're taking on board the, the work of people like Rowling, the paleoclimatological work of Rowling, and some of the modelling work that suggests really a two-metre rise by 2100 is a not implausible scenario. And I'm going to explore this space between the high end of, of the distribution from the Hadley Centre, which I'll call my low scenario, maybe confusingly. From now on, that's the low. So half a metre uh, by 2100, up to two metres by 2100, and explore that space and what kinds of impacts might occur in that range. One comment has been made by others, but I think it's an important point, just to remember that the world does not end in 2100. This is a fairly old picture now, just showing um, three scenarios with un unmitigated and then two stabilisation scenarios. And if we continue the stabilisation scenarios um, beyond to 2250, um, we're actually delaying, not avoiding sea level rise. So I think there's, again, a key point that um, sea level is the least responsive of any climate parameter to mitigation. And therefore, there is a huge commitment to sea level rise, as has been said, and there is a big commitment, I think, hence to responding or adapting to sea level rise that will go on to our grandchildren and beyond. Why do we care about coasts? Well, here, this is a picture that shows you land area, population and GDP, different measures of GDP, as a function of elevation above mean high water at the, uh, at the global scale. So you see some big numbers. If we move on, it's probably more useful to look at them in some kind of normalised um, sense, that we have, um, um, from zero to 10 metres, um, getting on for sort of 3.5% of the world's land. 
But in terms of population, according to this data, we have about 7% of the world's people and 7% of the world's GDP uh, measured with um, PPP. Arguably, these numbers might be a bit low. Other studies have actually come up with um, more like 10% of population in this um, area within 10 metres of mean high water. So people and assets are very strongly concentrated in the area where sea level will, may well affect them both directly and indirectly. And that's one of the reasons that we are concerned. And this exposure is also dynamic with time. Um, so let's, let's move in and think a little bit more about exposure and how dynamic it might be with time. This is getting rather more specific. There are 136 ports in 2005 with more than a million people in them around the world. So uh, again, a concentration of people, a concentration of assets, also critical for world trade. I mean, so all the goods um, move through these cities. To give you some overall statistics, about 40 million people in these 136 cities were estimated to be within the 100-year floodplain uh, in 2005. Um, and about 3,000 uh, billion of assets, or 5% of global GDP, was in the 100-year floodplain as it exists today. Um, the distribution is interesting. If you look at continents, Asia stands out in terms of population. And actually, Asian cities tend to have a much higher exposed population than other continents. I think largely because many of these cities are in deltas that are low-lying. If we move to assets, um, we see a difference. North America pops up because the average North American is rather wealthy compared to the average Asian in 2005. So there's more things. So we get a bipolar world in 2005 um, between Asia and uh, the Americas. How might this change into the future, the dynamics of exposure? Well, we looked at scenario of, of a half metre sea level rise by 2070s and socioeconomic change. We brought in the IPCC AR4 estimates, we assumed the AR4 estimates of storm enhancement were true, and we also looked at an adverse substance scenario. So we have two climate change factors and um, two non-climate factors, and this is due to population growth. And it's the biggest change. So just demographic change, urbanisation, is the biggest driver of the numbers of people that, might, that will be living in the floodplain to the 2070s. And then we can look at these other factors. So then the base is really to look along this blue line. How much more have you got on the dark green line? So sea level with a half metre by 2070, so a very, quite a large change, certainly consistent with the range we're looking at here, is, um, is the second biggest factor. But storm, more intense storms, enhancing extreme sea levels, and substance are also important. So exposure is evolving, and it's evolving due to a number of different and interacting factors. Lastly, I mean, again, I ask, get asked the question, what are the impacts of sea level rise regularly by the press? And I always have to point out the issue, well, unfortunately, human beings adapt. So exposure does not equal impact. And so we have things like barriers, hard engineering, the Thames barrier, this beach, which may look natural, but this is an artificial, this has been nourished in Florida to give a wider beach, storm protection, also recreation benefit, or at the small scale, just simply raising buildings. This is where I live on the Isle of Wight, and if you rebuild in the floodplain, you have to raise your house above the 100-year flood level in the island. That's what's happening in that particular picture. So there's lots of different things people can do about um, adaptation. And I think, again, I've written a paper. When we think about um, impacts, we're looking at a response to climate, 
sea levels rising, um, to exposure, which is dynamic, and also adaptation. And clearly, the drivers of climate and exposure are increasing um, the likelihood of impacts, but adaptation is obviously acting in the opposite sense. It's trying to manage those risks. And I think when you see and look in the literature, you do get the sort of the pessimist view, which often stresses large change in climate. It's sort of more implicit why I put it in brackets, but that adaptation is impossible or it'll fail, that impact effectively equals exposure. And so we're looking at a world with high impacts, numerous disasters, and basically an unplanned and forced retreat will be the, ad, the de facto adaptation response, maybe a, not a planned response, but a, conversely, we have, uh, and again, a lot of papers do take this kind of view about sea level rise, and lots of presentations. Optimists um, take a rather rosier view of the world. They kind of implicitly maybe think about less climate change, but again, it's in brackets, but the adaptation is successful in developed areas. So impacts will be a lot less than exposure, and so you're gonna have much smaller impacts than up here, but there'll be significant adaptation costs. So if, if you like, the main impact of sea level rise is a lot of money invested in protection. And so Lomberg, I mean, certainly, you know, he, he, ex he exposes this view. Um, and I, again, where, where do I sit? Well, I think we we're not really sure. I'll probably sit in between these two views, but I think we don't really understand the issues well enough to be, to be confident of where we are on this possible spectrum. And, and um, not, not so many people seem to explore the middle territory. So let's look at that now with the DIVA model. The, the DIVA stands for the Dynamic Interactive Vulnerability Analysis. It was developed in, a, uh, EU, um, in an EU-funded um, uh, project called Dynas Coast. And the basic structure is we, we start off with socioeconomic scenarios. We have climate change, particularly sea level rise. And a key feature of DIVA is it considers adaptation. There are, there are caricatures of adaptation. We can't look at uh, a wide range of things, but we can look at things like building dikes and beach nourishment, so we can, which are well-understood measures. We know quite a lot about their costs, their unit costs, so we can actually apply them insensibly um, to, a, to a sort of global um, analysis. We initialized in 1995. Um, there's, a, there's a big database behind this, a bit like Dergo was showing in the previous talk, which underpins this, which isn't really shown here, but it's fundamental to being able to do this analysis. And we look at a number of different factors related to flooding, erosion, sanitization, and wetlands. That goes into a, a module that looks at socioeconomic impacts, um, and then adaptation is considered. The simplest adaptation case is you don't, so that you have the worst, the worst kind of the maximum impacts. But if you do adapt, then that feeds back into the next time step. So five years later, that adaptation is implemented and the cost of that adaptation is determined and we output metrics. So let's look at some of the metrics that we emerge. And so again, low sea level rise is half meter by 2100, high is two meters, okay? And so first of all, ecosystems, coastal wetland loss. Well, um, we're losing about one third and about two thirds of our coastal wetlands. So this is pretty catastrophic for coastal wetlands, although we have to remember that they are declining quite rapidly due to non-climate threats already. So, I mean, we have to, so, but, but if, if we can conserve our coastal wetlands, they are highly threatened and by this, and a large rise, the high scenario will lead to, you know, a very large loss of these systems. If we look at dry land loss, um, the low and the high, we see this pattern over time. Again, the, it's a large area, I think, to look in proportion, that actually the low sea level rise 
is only causing about is, is, well, sorry, the high sea level rise is doubling the loss. It's four times the, it's four times the change, but um, because there's a lot of land near sea level, you actually the, the, the amount of loss diminishes as you increase the amount of sea level rise. This is without adaptation. If we go on and actually then think, well, let's imagine I mean, we, in, in Diva we uh, in, in, in implement an adaptation where we protect um, dry land areas where it's worth doing so, um, we get this change where about 80% of the land lost is avoided. Okay? Um, so again, illustrating the point that adaptation can really modify the impacts. But clearly there's a cost associated with this, and that, I'll come to that in a moment. Um, it also modifies where um, uh, impacts occur. So if we look at no adaptation, the, the region that loses the most land is North America. Second largest uh, area is Southeast Asia. If we go on, um, Southeast Asia, with adaptation, hardly loses any land. North America um, loses proportionately more. Of course, globally, we're losing a lot less. So it's a, it's a proportion of a smaller number. And the, the Russia... The, you know, the, the former Soviet Union then becomes the area. So it's basically high latitude, low populated areas where most area, land is being uh, abandoned. Um, if we look at people at risk of flooding, so you know, again, we're using the A1B socioeconomic scenario here. You need to have, obviously, a, a view of how the future will evolve. Um, under, the, under the low, and I should say, in the initialization, we do assume that there are dikes, there are optimized dikes built in 1995 but they are not changed with time. Because we see a world where there are defences today, and we assume that there's no upgrade. Um, and so they progressively get overwhelmed in this um, low sea level rise scenario. With the high sea level rise scenario, they get overwhelmed more quickly, and you actually see the effect of the A1B social economics coming in here, because population peaks in 2050. So the fact that it stabilises here is an interplay between sea level, but falling exposure, because there's less people living in the coastal zone. So that's why th that explains those different slopes. There are adaptation numbers on here, but you can't really see them, so let's go to a log scale so that you can. So again, if you assume um, optimal adaptation, you get a completely different pattern where actually, despite sea level rise um, occurring, the numbers of people experiencing flooding are diminishing. And this is underpinned partly by the, the socioeconomic scenarios. The A1B has very large growth, so people are wealthier, and they become more and more risk adverse, as well as adapting to sea level rise. So they build dikes not just to deal with climate change, but also to reduce risks. To, so effectively, by the end of the 21st century, the whole world's like the Netherlands, I suppose, would be you know, a simple uh, statement in terms of people's wealth and their attitudes towards risk. That's, that's really what we're saying here. How much is this costing? Well, if we look at the sea dike cost, um, there's, uh, for, the low, for the low sea level rise, we're looking at a growing cost, 10 billion US dollars per year um, by, the, by 2100, with the higher rise about 40, um, 44 billion US dollars. So large sums of money, but not, certainly not sums of money that sound out of the envelope of what uh, is uh, invested today when we look at countries like the UK and the Netherlands. And to give you a flavour of what are the non-climate costs of dikes, that's the green line. So it's comparable with the low sea level rise scenario. There is a problem with this because DIVA is essentially a linear model designed up for a really sea level rise up to one metre. And so um, I've done, I looked, I wanted to sort of think, well, what would the cost be if we considered that dikes, a two metre dike is going to cost four times a kind of quadratic function 
um, the amount that a one-metre dike would cost. At the same time, as, we, as the cost of dikes goes up, you're probably going to protect less of the world's coast. So to do this calculation, I went to the fund model where we've done runs that actually look at this kind of question. And if dike costs go up five-fold, um, you actually protect, you abandon one quarter of the world's developed coast, according to fund. So I've taken that number, um, taken the quadratic of dike costs, brought in maintenance costs, bought in beach nourishment, and then you get these total costs, low sea level rise, about $25 billion per year in 2100, high 215, so it's really grown compared to, it has a big effect on what you see compared to the, the um, figure I showed, the sort of direct diva output. So basically an order of magnitude, but again, probably certainly not inconsistent with Pierre Veringer's figure for a one meter um, rise in um, sea level. So now, you're probably, maybe some of you are thinking I'm a bit mad, thinking that we might put dikes around the world's coasts. Um, well, just some sort of evidence here to sort of support, well, actually, we have experienced two metres rise in sea level in the 20th century. Places that have sunk, subsidence. Tokyo sank up to five metres, Osaka up to three, Tianjin up to two, Shanghai up to three, Bangkok up to two. They're all still there, and they all depend on dikes and water management and pumps to keep themselves dry. So the only empirical evidence we have about people, how people respond to two metres sea level rise suggests that the sort of the optimist view is actually um, correct. Now, of course, the pessimists also have some views on their side. Um, so I think certainly the amount and success of adaptation is going to depend on a lot more than cost-benefit analysis. And is the investment and the capacity to use it available? Pretty basic question. I mean, in the SRES scenarios, which are rather rosy about the future, there is a lot of wealth in the future. Is that going to be true? Even if you've got the wealth, can you use it? And there are issues around, um, we've done work on this, indecision, clearly competition for limited resources. Not all countries will, will it cost 0.2% uh, of, of GDP like it does in the Netherlands. And the, the other factor, of course, is economic criteria are not the only factor. If we look around the wider perception of how societies feel about risk and how... Um, how maybe a disaster event can really trigger changes in behaviour. And one thing, I mean, to think about is the possible loss of confidence under the scenario of a large sea level rise that it could trigger investors not to invest in low-lying areas. So there could, there's a lot of interesting processes that have clearly not been described in what uh, uh, I'm talking about here. So some concluding remarks. Sea level rise is a major threat that will continue for centuries. Um, certainly the exposure is high and it's growing, but the actual impacts are much less certain as they depend on the amount and the success of adaptation. And I take adaptation in the broadest sense. I mean, we've used dikes and beach nourishment in the diva runs. You can think of a much wider range of things happening in the real world. If we look at optimum protection costs, um, they vary from 25 to 215 billion per year in 2100 across the sea level rise scenarios. Not advocating those, it's just giving a bracket for the kinds of figures that might emerge but there is an issue, I suppose, some people ask me, what about the wetlands? That is hardening the coast. There are clearly other costs due to ecosystems that you may not want, may not want to go on this route for that reason or find a much wider portfolio of measures. And I think my concluding remark really is a better understanding of adaptation is essential. And especially, I haven't talked about the vulnerable areas, but the, I think we all know what they are without giving a talk. Small islands, deltas, and other vulnerable settings, places like Africa, which are poor. These are the places where the challenges are greatest. Thank you very much.